Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is New Ideal Live. So it's the video and podcast series of New Ideal, which is the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. And in these podcasts and, and videos, we discuss the important issues and events shaping our world. We discuss them from Ayn Rand's, the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, objectivism, uh, which is a philosophy that upholds reason, individualism, and capitalism. And if you can see the slide that's up here, you can visit us on the web at newideal.einrand.org. This evening, we have a pretty serious topic and certainly an important topic. We're talking about the nationwide protest, and I'm going to be joined uh, with a distinguished panelist of guests. So you can see the list up here. We have Dr. Harry Binswanger, who's a philosopher. He's on the board of the Ayn Rand Institute. Dr. Yaron Brook is here. He's uh, the past CEO of the Ayn Rand Institute, currently the chairman of the board of the Ayn Rand Institute, uh, known public intellectual. My name, if you don't know, is Ankar Gatte. I'm a senior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. We'll also be joined by Dr. Greg Salmieri, who is, uh, what is your know, senior philosophy scholar at the University of Texas Austin's Salem Center. Uh, and you might be familiar with Greg too, he often lectures and teaches for ARI. So you may have seen him in that venue. And then last but not least, we have Peter Schwartz joining us. He's, uh, I think the title is Distinguished Fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute and also a past chairman of the board of the Ayn Rand Institute. Um, and we're, so you guys can uh, activate your camera. I'm gonna stop sharing this. So welcome everybody. Hello. Hi. Yeah, I see everybody, I think, great. Um, and yeah, so the, our topic is the nationwide protest. I thought I would start off by just a little bit of context setting and running through what I think are some of the basic facts of what has been ha happening, but we can start off if, the, if you think either something I say is not really a fact or there's things missing. That, but I, it's good, I think, to have everyone basically on the same page of what we're talking about and what's been happening. And if we can, I'd like to frame the two things to frame the conversation. One of thinking of it, particularly of a young person, say a college student, who's observing all these events and is, 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 is likely troubled by many of them, but also is, is trying to process and understand what is going on. And what would you say to that person to help them try to understand the real meaning and essence of the events that have been going on for at least the past two weeks? And let's try to not assume, as I think my introduction made clear, everybody here is an expert on Ayn Rand's philosophy, but let's try to assume that the, the people we're talking to might not have anywhere close to the familiarity with Ayn Rand's philosophy that we have, but is hoping that they'll get some insight from some things that we have to say. Um, <clears throat> and we're a lot of people in this conversation. So if you can try to keep the like, individual comments brief, I'm gonna try to distribute the conversation, make sure everybody has a chance to speak, but if you can, instead of making like four points, make one and let someone else speak and then go to your second point, that will be uh, appreciated by me and probably the audience as well. Um, <clears throat> okay, so about some of what 
has been happening. So the broadest content context, I think, is that everyone or almost everyone across the U.S. has been in statewide lockdowns because of COVID-19. And then there also had been some uh, high-profile kill high killings in the sense that they had made the news and there's discussion about them. There's at least uh, the Ahmad Arbery killing in February that in Georgia, which comes to light only in late April, I think is when the stories really start hitting. Um, and then in March, there's the killing in Kentucky of Breonna Taylor. And both of these are mentioned often in the protests and now in the news discussion of these. But those are prior events to what the catalyst seems to be for the protest, which is the killing of uh, George Floyd in, on May 25th and the video of that killing uh, going viral. So that it was uh, some, there were bystanders, it was filmed and the video was then seen everywhere and it's on the news everywhere. And I think at least two things sort of coming out of the video going viral is one, it's almost instantaneously interpreted as an instance of racism. So it was four cops who are white or at least not black, the victim's black, and it was immediately interpreted as this is, he was killed because he's black, or at least like that's a significant element in, in what happened. Uh, and so it brought up all issues about racism and discussion of racism because of that interpretation. And second, the, the issue of that it's difficult to, it would be put in different ways, prosecute police officers, bring them to justice, something like that. And so there were a lot of stories about, well, they have partial immunity and that's a problem in the law. And so, but in terms of how this was sort of initially being discussed, I think these are the two salient factors that were brought up. And then it, um, what we got is protests, and then a protest across the nation. The last thing I heard on, on NPR is 700 cities have had protests in the U.S. Um, they're often under the Black Lives Matter banner, or at least there's uh, some of the organizers for some of the protests at least seem to be that. Uh, and, there, and the slogan, obviously, of Black Lives Matter is everywhere. Uh, in many of the protests, you would see a lot of signs, or at least some signs, it's hard to get the extent of it, but certainly uh, in a number of the protests of really evil slogans like kill the police, murder the police, and things, and even worse than that. Um, but in other of the protests, you've even seen police join in the protest and in the march. Um, you saw it, for instance, in Camden, New Jersey, which has come to light also because of police reforms and so on. So that's been in the news. Um, a number of the protests then in the different cities bled into riots, looting, and uh, killing. So the, 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 the office, the, uh, an officer was killed in Oakland. Uh, a retired police officer, David Dorn, was killed in um, St. Louis, attempting to protect uh, a, a pawn shop of someone he knew from uh, the rioters and the looters. There's been a lot of people either excusing or even justifying the riots and the looting. Um, there's been both police and protesters injured. There's been many arrests at many of the protests. Um, in some of the protests, you even see some of the protesters protecting the police and protecting property and going after rioters and looters. You've seen journalists roughed up 
by the police. Um, you've seen governors activate the National Guard in different states. And then part of Trump's response is that we need to bring in the military. He invoked the 1807 Insurrection Act. And then you had military leaders on both, both existing and retired or on both sides, some supportive of Trump and yet we need to do this kind of thing and others with very critical feedback. I think Mattis, General Mattis was probably the most prominent, but there certainly have been other uh, retired uh, uh, Navy, Army, and so on, people, people in the military high up criticizing it. You had the Tom Cotton, the Senator Tom Cotton's op-ed in, in the New York Times, which the New York Times gave the title or, or subtitle, Send in the Troops. There was a lot of pushback at the New York Times about that. Even the editor was, uh, either fired or resigned. Um, in DC, there was a, a dispute between the mayor and Trump uh, about do we need federal law enforcement here? And you had, even on the streets of DC, you had what seemed like federal law enforcement with no identification. So no, like FBI, there's nothing. And journalists even asked them, like from where, what are you? And they did not reply. They did not give any information about what they are, but they had guns and shields and so on. Um, and that, like, that at least is, is some of what has been going on in regard to the protests and sort of the debate discussion about that. I would say at, at the stage of today, the protests and demonstrations seem to have fewer incidents and less rioting and so on than they had a week ago. Um, there's increasing calls, and now it's part of the news cycle conversation of to, def to defund the police. It's not clear even what that means, but I mean, you even have in Minneapolis, yeah, we're going to do this and, the and so on. And you've had a lot of businesses <sighs> voicing support for the protests. Um, and to take a prominent one, Amazon, if you go on their the, the front page of their website, it has Black Lives Matter, Amazon stands in solidarity with the black community. And then they have a link to their blog of where you can see what they're doing. So, um, and I think that's sort of where we are. So that's a recap, I think, of, of some of the facts of what has been going on. And then our conversation is going to be about how to understand and process this and, and get to an essentialized view of what is happening. But is, with that, does anyone want to either say dispute something about the facts or add something that they think is essential? I think it's important here to distinguish between what is not what this whole phenomenon is nominally about and what it is actually about. So let me first say what I think it is not about. It is when I say it, I mean this protest movement led and inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement. It is, it is not about cases of actual police-inspired racism against Blacks. The Black Lives Matter movement, despite lip service to the contrary, is not really concerned about factual evidence of such things happening. When they came to prominence uh, six years ago with the Ferguson case where Michael Brown 
was killed by a white policeman. The case was strongly investigated. It was immediately denounced by the Black Lives Matter movement as a, an atrocious instance of police brutality against blacks, another in the ongoing series of such events. Yet, after this was investigated, the police officer involved was completely exonerated. This, the, the facts of the case were that the person, Michael Brown, was trying to grab the policeman's gun, was threatening to attack him, and the policeman fired in what was deemed to be justifiable self-defense. Yet, this is still a case that is pushed prominently as an example of what Black Lives Matter is opposed to, as an example of what is going on in the country that has to be undone. Now, what Black Lives Matter actually is focused on is any time a black person is attacked or killed by a white police officer, that is immediately condemned as racism. Regardless of the evidence, regardless of the facts, even today, when, as I said, the policeman involved in the Michael Brown case was deemed to be acting in self-defense, they still, many of the protesters, or some of them, still have T-shirts and signs saying, "Don't hands up, don't shoot, which was supposed to be what the victim, Michael Brown, was saying at the time he was killed by the police, which was completely discredited. The Black Lives Movement is not concerned with objective evidence of racial violence by police against Blacks. That's what it's not interested in. Let's later get into what it is interested in. Oh, what, what, I have to add one point. I think because that is not really its primary concern, it's a big mistake to start discussing whether or not there is racism spread throughout police departments, how widespread is it, how dangerous is it. That is conceding the premise that objective facts about racism are of concern to this movement. That's the wrong place to start this discussion. So I think we should think about what does it mean to attribute something to a movement and what is a movement, right? So there's, if we have a movement, whether it's Black Lives Matter or the Tea Party movement or conservatism or libertarianism, uh, uh, whatever the movement might be, uh, occasionally you have something like objectivism where it starts off with somebody laying out a clear set of principles. Um, but typically what you have is people kind of coalesce and someone takes a leadership role and what do we think of as the movement? Well, we could think of it as the leaders, uh, um, the respected leaders and what they're doing. If we're thinking about what's the mo movement's motives, we can think about it as the ideology that's framed by the leaders and what can we tell about this ideology, what's its essence. Uh, or you could think about it as what does the average guy who's in the march think or what's motivating him? And I don't think any of those three things in isolation is the right way to think about it. I think. Um, if you just had a person with some, a leader with some ideas he was spouting, he wouldn't get thousands of people out in the street marching. There wouldn't be a movement. 
um, yet the people wouldn't be marching and wouldn't be saying the things they're saying uh, unless the kind of concerns and um, grievances or whatever they had were put into some kind of focus by someone who has an agenda and is uh, calling the shots and setting what to do. And so I think to understand the movement, we have to think of there as being a bunch of people with concerns um, that which concerns are then conceptualized and articulated and put into a program for action by whoever the leaders of the people are. And so when we're thinking about what are they really concerned about, um, I think there's a little bit of prizing a part of things to do. If we're talking about what Black Lives Matter as a movement does, well, they take a certain set of concerns about police brutality and about um, racism in particular in policing uh, that are very widely shared in the community. Um, and then they frame it, uh, at least very often they frame it, as down with capitalism, down with the system, all of America is awful and rotten. Uh, what we need to do is totally reform the country. Um, and if you think of that as the movement, then yeah, the facts don't matter. It's just an excuse to, um, to bash America and bash uh, our system of government and they'd find another excuse if not this one. But the America bashers have for a century, a century at least, right, been trying different causes to rally people around them to bash America. Most of them don't work or just work for a year or two and then people get tired of them and won't do it. Uh, racism's gotten a lot of people behind it. And I think the reason why is because there is a problem that they're capitalizing on and distorting people's um, understanding of to call for things that are in fact not helpful to the problem, but making it work. Or at least a lot of the things that are called for under the banner of Black Lives Matter do that. And I'm curious, uh, and maybe I've looked into this. I find it very hard to figure out. I think, Yaron, you may have looked into this too. In terms of trying to figure out the protest and who's organizing these and also who's going to them. So I know people have gone to the protests uh, and they don't, if you ask, like, are you part of Black Lives Matter movement or not? Their answer is no. Um, they're going for a specific and primarily for the George Floyd, but it seems like this is a wider problem and there's something wrong and I'm going in order to do something about that. Now, you, if you ask them, like, what does a protest do? It's, they don't have that much of an answer to that question. But if you ask them, like, or do you think you're part of Black Lives Matter movement? They'll say no. But there obviously also is the issue of it's easy to co-opt these kinds of things. And many of them are using the slogan, Black Lives Matter, even though if you ask them, like, are you part of the movement? Have you read any of what the whole program they stand for? They'll say no. So I'm, it's much more concrete and so that I'm, and it's, I found it hard to figure this out. And, and so to paint the protest with one brush that this is all Black Lives Matter, though it's certain, there certainly is a significant element of it. Um, but I wonder if anyone just has a view about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with Peter with regard to the nature of Black Lives Matter and, and, and the fact that, yeah, I mean, they don't care. The, the, the leadership, the people who take those ideas seriously, the people who are influenced directly by them. I mean, clearly, facts don't matter here. They're, they're out for destruction. Um, but I think that they, you know, many of the people, and it's impossible to tell how many, who go to these demonstrations, even people who carry signs. I mean, even Mitt Romney, 
was talking about Black Lives Matter, right? He was using the term. So it's become now this term that everybody is using and almost nobody has researched to, to understand what do these people really stand for? Now, it, it, they need to. I think I, I tweeted something about, you know, you shouldn't go to the demonstrations even if you think there is racism and brutality, just because you're marching under the banner of Black Lives Matter and what that represents. But the fact is people are going and, and people are there and they're exactly the kind of young people who are concerned, who are, um, who, 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 you know, are, are concerned about kind of the, the, the underlying issues that are out there that are somewhat innocent. Yes, we could say the burden is on them to research this, but we live in a very different culture. That's not, that's not what happens. And so I think while we need to condemn Black, Mat Black Lives Matter, we also need to address the underlying issue. Otherwise, we lose those other people who are marching. We, we lose them to, um, e e you know, either to the side that says, um, either to Black Lives Matter themselves, or, to, or they dismiss us by saying, you don't get it. There's a real problem here. Uh, and they don't take us seriously on any issue. Uh, and, you know, or they write us off as, and this is, I think, really dangerous in the environment because it's one thing if there was Black Lives Matters and then there was a uh, rational opposition. <laughs> but the opposition of Black Lives Matter in the, in the, in the, in the world is, is Donald Trump and the people affiliated with him. And, and that, is, that is a really bad, those are bad people for us to be affiliated with. So we need to distance ourselves from both and address who Black Lives Matter really is, who Donald Trump really is, and what are the issues that concern the people who I think are innocently concerned about the facts, about, about actual evidence regarding, uh, regarding what's going on. And I'll just say one thing about Michael Brown. I, I mean, again, I agree with Peter, but there is, and, and this is part of what's happened in this country over the last, I, don't, I can't even tell how, many, how long, but there is a massive distrust of facts, of, of where to get your facts, of, of, of what's actually going on, certainly of the just, criminal justice system, of the police, but of the media. So when the New York Times does a, a really great story about Michael Brown and shows that it, all of that, you know, that, that he, it was his fault that he attacked the police, there are a lot of people who just dismiss that and, and, and buy into their, their previous convictions to this idea of, you know, fake news, you know, but that's not the right way to conceptualize it. The idea that people don't believe any sources anymore plays into this whole story and into the conspiracy theories on the left and right. Okay. Okay. I'd like to say one thing about that, that um, I think, in the in the U.S. today, the court systems are still by far. If the, if you're picking like an area of the country, court systems, um, the news media, the executive branch or Congress, the court, the judiciary is the best of what is remains. And if you want to really look into some of these cases, so I've been reading both the Trayvon Martin case. Um, which is, that's what leads to Black Lives Matter and it becomes prominent with the Michael Brown case. The Trayvon Martin case is when you read the actual, the court, so when it goes to court and you have to present evidence, it's shockingly bad about the narrative that Trayvon Martin was innocent 
and it's he was gunned down. It's a, there's basically no evidence. Everything supports Zimmerman. It shouldn't have probably even gone to trial. The, the police didn't want to bring it. He was, does the, the police chief in Florida was, dis, I mean, of the, I'm blanking out on the particular area, was dismissed. They brought in a special prosecutor. They didn't even take it to the grand jury because likely they couldn't get past the grand jury. And when it gets to the, the level of it that we have a real trial, um, it's clear that he should not be convicted. So I would add to the, that they don't take the Michael Brown case. It's also the Trayvon Martin case that they don't, yeah, okay, this is now a much of anything you're going to get. This is an objective processing of the facts, and it doesn't lead to what you thought it led. And there's even, when you see stuff of the, the news media edited the 911 call, and when you read the whole transcript, you get a very different sense from the edited person that makes him look like, oh yeah, the first thing that came to mind is this, the guy's black and that's the problem. So that's not when you read the track. So if you're looking for the actual facts, I think the best is to see, this is why it's really important that they, you have wait till they go to trial. And we, this is still the, an objective, I think essentially objective process. But then if you take like the Michael Brown, you have to get two things, the FBI, Inve or Depart sorry, Department of Justice investigated two things. They investigated the Michael Brown, and I've, I've been, I have the reports here, I've been reading them. They investigated the Michael Brown, and yeah, the, the police officer was way too unjustly treated. He did not do anything, and there's no evidence that he did anything that he was being accused of and gunned him down. But they also investigated the Ferguson d Police Department and found a lot of racism to the extent that they view it as deliberate, that it's intentional prosecution of the, the people, blacks, particularly blacks, but not just blacks, in Ferguson. And so when people talk about like, why did it explode? This is probably some of the reason that it exploded. But if you're really looking, I think at the, if you're trying to get the facts, the judicial part of our government is by far the best. And if you don't read and take these seriously, that this was a processing of evidence, then I don't think you're actually interested in what the evidence is for these cases. Harry, that you, you're muted, but yeah, you haven't said anything, so let me give you it. Okay. Uh, I think there are two things to be kept in mind. Number one is the cure for racism is individualism and capitalism. That to be against racism is to be on the side of judging people for their own individual chosen attributes. And this point should be made. Yes, racism is evil because it's the same thing as socialism. It's the same thing as fascism. It's subordinating the individual to the group and the um, we can make a lot of hay with that. I mean, because people, you know, the innocent uh, followers or, or dupes, you might call them, but uh, let's let's not use that term. The innocent in the protests are against racism, and and if you're against racism, and you're not just against you as the victim of racism, then you're in favor of individualism. So I think that's a point to you know to side with them on yes we need individualism and the country is teetering on the edge of collectivism 
the second point is to remember that anti-racism rules this culture. So there's a tendency to look at it as, yeah, there are racists and non-racists here. And some of the cops are maybe in Ferguson or maybe racist, and uh, we are anti-racist and we're demonstrating against them. We live in a culture that since 1964 has been totally in the hands of those who are against racism, some of them, uh, I think I just lost my picture. Yeah, you, you disappeared. Your, <laughs> your room is still there without you. I, no, that's oh. a virtual background in my, yeah. and uh, anyway, uh, the, um, the since 1964, those who are legitimately against racism, which I think is a minority, and those who are packaging uh, opposition to racism with favoritism for certain races against other races, and generally identity politics, they have been in total command of this uh, society. And this is not acknowledged. I think that's what we have to look at. Now, we have affirmative action. We have the California university system resisting the Supreme Court, which ordered them to not use affirmative action. The whole California university system trying to find a way that they can still, and they found it, still manipulate in favor of race. We have in every good sized city, city, we have Martin Luther King Boulevard. We have Martin Luther King Day. We have, um, the uh, Thomas Jefferson decried, Thomas Jefferson dethroned from his earned position uh, as the father of our country intellectually and regarded as just, oh, he was just a slave owner, he's part of the problem. And the founding fathers in general somewhat discredited. All the Confederate flags, which were in profusion when I grew up in the South, are gone except for an occasional one here and there. Um, the statues are being pulled down as we speak of the Confederate war uh, quote heroes who were the actual villains in that struggle. Uh, we have um, the lionization. Well, we had, we had Obama elected for two terms, right? And that was supposed to end the racial uh, thing. We have um, Harriet Tubman uh, from time to time, my picture will disappear. Don't worry about it. Harriet Tubman was put on a coin. Do you think uh, Bull Connor, you don't even know who Bull Connor is, do you? He was never put on a, on a coin. Uh, Jefferson Davis was not put on a coin. Uh, so the, uh, uh, this quarterback, uh, Drew Rees, recently, uh, he's a white man, but he did, wanted to not kneel to show that he approved of this country and he was just bullied into doing it. And as we said, the Black Lives Matter, you know, it's not every life matters, which you could understand, but the, the, the fear of racism, some legitimate and some not legitimate, some reverse racism and some proper anti-racism have ruled this culture since 1964. And, so and I think this that's I what? think this whole way of putting it is confused because it's not that 
racism's on the decline and anti-racism is ruling or winning, when the alleged anti-racism positions are themselves racist, right? right? When they're encouraging us to think of people in groups, there's not two things, racism and reverse racism. There's just one thing racism. That's right. The That's extent right. to which a culture is thinking of people in terms of racial groups and then judging them in terms of that and having tribal fights between them. And what we had in the early civil rights movement, the in the in the 40s, actually from the end of World War One through shortly through the through the mid 60s, is we had a, a increasingly individualistic uh, after World War One and then in the earlier parts of after World War Two, an increasingly individualistic civil rights focused anti-racism movement, which was a heroic movement that had a lot of good effects. And then we had a kind of shift back to a more and more collectivist, tribal, allegedly anti-racist movement, which is a racist movement. And the effects of a movement like that are the resurgence of racism in general. So it's not that anti-racism rules the culture, it's that the culture is now more and more in a melee of people fighting over racial issues. And you say, I think everybody knows who Volcanor is, but not only does everyone know who Volcanor is, there may be not statues or streets named after him, but there are plenty of statues and streets named after Jefferson Davis, named after Lee, and a lot of these things were put up in the 60s in response to what um, uh, people who wish they could still have segregation and want to fight back about. And now as those things are being torn down, uh, there are people who are protesting, and they're not protesting because they love Thomas Jefferson. They're protesting because they love Jefferson Davis. They're coming yeah. out with tiki torches. There are people who are committing acts of terrorism in America based on white supremacy and Confederate things. Think of Dylan Roof. There are cases of, um, and you say that the Confederate flag was all over the place in your youth, but it's gone now. It's not true that it's gone now. A couple of years ago, I was driving through upstate New York. Upstate New York, not Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia. New York, I was on my way from Buffalo, from New Jersey to Buffalo. And I went through towns and almost every house had an American flag and right next to it, the treacherous uh, Confederate flag. So the cause of the Confederacy has uh, become popular. And it's become popular again uh, as a result of uh, a general atmosphere of racial animosity in the country. And that's racism ruling, not anti-racism ruling. And no, it's, I mean, it's I in the name, it's the in the name of anti-racism. I, I agree with you that it is racism, but I disagree but with you that, that, that the old-fashioned racism has any clout whatsoever in this culture. All you'd have to do is take a reporter to upstate New York, and those things would be gone within a week, or those people would be totally snowed under by, by protests and, and death threats and so forth. So they're well, not equal. They yeah, so you can say there's are... racism left, old-fashioned racism left, and there is, and there always will be, but it's in the backwaters. It has no cultural control. The culture is in the control of the leftist races. Well, it has the anti-racist. that the people who want to tear down the Jefferson Davis statues include some very fine, who want to oppose that include some very fine people. It yes. has a president who announced his campaign, starting by talking about how Mexico is sending us its rapists. We have a president who wouldn't denounce David Duke and kind of played footsie with him for a long time. Mm -hmm. So how can we say, yeah, yeah, it doesn't have the universities. It doesn't have the New York Times and the Washington Post. But that's not the whole of the culture. That's one side of the culture. The, the leftist, liberal, um, university side of the culture is anti-racist, which is a kind of racism in the way they do it. Mm -hmm. And the people responding to that, the Republicans, the Breitbarts, the Trumps, all of the people with them are uh, a return to the old fashioned kind of racism more and more.
or a variant. Mm. Can I, well, can I, I jump in here? Yeah. Can I jump in here? Greg, you're trying to make the point that there is a, in the country, in the culture, there is still a strong element of racism and that therefore many people have a legitimate concern about it and that these people, let's call them entirely innocent for argument's sake, these are the people who maybe join in with these protests even if they don't buy into the entire Black Lives Matter program. And you say, therefore, we have to take into account these people's concerns. We should, we absolutely do have to take their concerns into account, but the, the, what, what you're recommending is the exact wrong way to do it. We don't want to mollify these people by saying, yes, you have a legitimate concern about the kinds of cases about Ferguson and so forth. What we have to tell them is, if you are genuinely concerned about racism and you want to stop it, when you go to a Black Lives Matter demonstration, you are contradicting that concern. You are uh, enabling and abetting the strong racism that Black Lives Matter propagates. If we genuinely want to address the people who have these concerns, let's tell them, okay, you're concerned about racism, you should become an advocate, as Harry is, is stressing, become an advocate of individualism, see where it leads. If they're not willing to do that, okay, or, or able to do that, okay. But above all, don't join or in any way sanction a movement that stands diametrically opposed to what you claim to be concerned about. Now, so I'm not okay. saying wait, you wait, should I, address... I ask, oh, go ahead, Uncle. Yeah, I want to ask a question about this. I also want to bring in Iran because... Uh, and it, it's, the, it's the Trump phenomenon. So I agree with the issue of if, you, if you're trying to convince people racism is bad, you have to stress the positive, you have to stress individualism, and you have to really caution people not to get involved into things that they think are fighting racism, which are actually promoting it. And I think that's true of Black Lives Matter. But one of the things that has shocked me about the Trump phenomenon is the amount of racism that I think there is in the support that Trump, so what they call his base, um, and like some of what you brought up, Perry, some of your examples, Greg talked about some about the Confederate flag, Confederate statues. I'm in Virginia. Yeah, they're all over the place. And even when, um, I mean, I've had debates or no, I thought I had conversations where I thought everybody's going to be against the Confederate statues with intellectuals who are viewed like part of the intellectual dark web. Let's put it like that. And they're all defending the Confederate statues. They should stay up and so that this is because this is the left tearing them down. So, and I had like, how is this not being on the side of race? Maybe not on the side of the left, but how, why is this not on the side of racism? And then you brought up like Drew Brees. Uh, and one of the, this is on Fox News, Laura Ingram. If you, and this is like, if you're, particularly when we're thinking of a young person, this is what they'll see. They'll, you'll see the videos of her discussing LeBron James when he makes political comments. And it's literally, shut up and dribble. We don't want to hear what you have to say. And, but, but when Drew Brees does it is, how can people attack him from his political viewpoint? Everybody gets a political viewpoint. So, and they look at that and they say, like, this is just the different treatment. I mean, LeBron James is as prominent, as successful an athlete 
as good a person, I think, as Drew Brees. And yet, when he says it, oh, that's okay. When LeBron James says it, it's not even why it's shut up and dribble. And they'll look at that and say, like, this is racism. And I, like, I think Iran's been surprising. This is what I want to hear a little bit about is how much, like every time I watch your show, Iran, it's you've got racists come and you talk about like, I'm getting racist. And I think you've been shocked by the amount of that. So one of the things that I find interesting about the Trump phenomenon is it should at least make you think, yeah, maybe there was more racism in the country than I thought there was. And now it's surfacing. Oh yeah, I think that. But I think that. Iran and then let's get, yeah, and then you heard. I, yeah. You're muted, you're on. Um, I remember uh, when I first encountered this, it was when Trump was running and, and this whole alt-right thing was, was out there. And I thought, this can't be serious. There's nobody's really alt-right. And I, and I started digging a little bit and reading up about it. And, um, and it looked, okay, there's something here. And then I did a show about it. And, and the comments I got and the tweets I got and the response I got was not just racism and anti-Semitism in a way that I could have never imagined in the 21st century existed out there. And that has only uh, been reinforced over the last five years. There's more and more of that. Now it's, 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 it's on the fringe. You could argue it's young people looking to, to beat havoc and, and going online and finding people like me and harassing them. Uh, but it's out there, and it's, it's, I see it, you know, even more than anything, I see it with immigration. I mean, I, I mean you guys know a little bit about this, but, but the, the, the viciousness of people's attitude towards immigrants is just stunning and, and shocking. And again, I never saw it before Trump. I never saw it before the 2016 election. It just didn't, I, you know, it was either there in hiding or something changed in the psyche of Americans. So... I think it's saying I've, I've said on the show many, many times, I think it's a response to identity politics. I think this is this is what the left brings out. The left brings out the worst of the right. It brings out the, the you know, that you want to play, you want to play identity politics. We can play identity politics. And uh, and you're seeing now, I think overwhelmingly on the left is racist. And I think there's more and more and more of the right is now racist. And, and the defense of Trump after Charlottesville, I mean, what he did after Charlottesville was horrific. And then everybody defended him. No, nobody criticized him. And that, to me, or on the right, among Republicans, it was shocking that to this day, people are still defending Trump's comments after Charlottesville. So I am shocked by how much racism there is out there on both sides and how it's hard to talk about individualism. It's hard to get people think about individualism. I mean, I'm, I become very pessimistic about the state of the culture since Trump was elected because I find fewer and fewer people who are responsive, who, who are open to, to, to our ideas, are open to, to particularly to individualism. That's the big one. And then Harry, that's, sorry, I cut you off. Oh, I just, uh, I just wanted to agree with something that was said uh, a while ago, and I don't even remember what it is, but I am uh, very upset with Trump's uh, election and the people he brought out from the sewer to to speak and the maybe the uh, submerged racism of people like Laura Ingraham, who Ingr is it Ingram or Ingraham? 
I think it's Ingraham, isn't it? Ingram, Ingram. Ingram. Maybe she kept it, you know, from herself as well as from her audience, and Trump would legitimatize the letting of a little bit more of it out. So I'm in total agreement with the uh, racism is on the increase because of Trump. But it's still true that the uh, racism is the small problem in the big problem is socialism, egalitarianism, determinism, and that's the thing that we can't lose sight of. We can't say, well, you know, bigoted and more shootings of police and so forth. That, that's the thing to be concerned with. I agree with Peter that you've got to step back and, and look at the big picture and say this country is going to hell because statism is increasing. I mean, look, we're sitting here talking about this and a month ago they doubled the federal budget. They doubled the spending, and it was a unanimous vote. So, I mean, that the, the country is going to hell, and the fact that there are some people with Confederate flags and so forth is very minor. It could be it's wrong, and the solution is individualism, but we've got to not fall for the, the bait of thinking that uh, the left is on to something here and that it's okay to... Well, it's not even the left, that the, these popular movements deserve any kind of support at all. They don't. But you can't separate the, 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 the fact that the budget is doubled is part of a rise on the right of collectivism. Maybe not racism, but of collectivism. The national conservative and all the variations on the right now. And, and it's shocking. I mean, the number of traditional, call them free market conservatives, the number that have any prominence is shrinking dramatically. They are disappearing. Collectivism, not in the form of racism, but in other forms. But racism is part of it. When you, when you listen to the actual talks at the National Conservatism Conference that they had, a number of them exhibited kind of racist comments, primarily regarding immigrants. But the rise of collectivism on the right is, in my view, the scariest thing. Because the left, we've always known. That always is the enemy. It still is the enemy. But there is no alternative to it. There's nobody right. speaking up against them. And that is a unanimous vote in the Senate. Every single Republican, including the most conservative so-called Republicans, all voting to double the, the budget. And that's not abnormal. That's after rising spending throughout the Trump presidency. So it's, it's the rise of collectivism and nationalism on the right, which I find just as scary as the rise of socialism on the left. So I have two related points here, and, and they're both in a way responding to Peter, uh, one disagreeing with him today and one agreeing with him from years ago. Uh, so I, I don't think you talked about me saying we should try to ameliorate the people on the left or the, the people who are concerned in the protests. And Iran talked about trying to appeal to these people. And that's all well and good to try to appeal to different people if there's something right that you could appeal to. But I don't think we should be focusing on how do we win over these people? How do we appeal to them? How do we ameliorate them? I think we should be focusing on what's true and what's just. And if there are a lot of people, if there's something true that they're onto, and we can see that they are, or that some of them are concerned about, then we should, and that, and that matters, then we should be fighting to address that issue because it's an issue of justice, not because it'll you know, be good box office. 
And if it's not, we shouldn't. So it's not just about appealing to people. It's about seeing our people onto some issues about racism in society that we worry. I don't think any of us 10 years ago would have predicted that somebody who started his presidential campaign talking about Mexico sending us rapists and who started his political career a few years earlier uh, lying about someone being born in Kenya who wasn't, right? I don't think any of us would have predicted that that kind of a person would win the Republican nomination and dominate the Republican Party. And I don't think any of us thought, like, once cell phone videos came out, uh, that we would start seeing as much, uh, as many cases of police brutality on them as it turns out we do see. So I think we shouldn't assume that we know everything, we're on to every one of the important issues, and when there's a, a tremendous popular upswell about there being an issue, that we know what's going on and those people don't. They might know things we don't and maybe be misconceptualizing them. And I think we should be exploring whether that's true, not just to appeal to them or to ameliorate them, but because we care about what's true. Then on the issue of how do these two things relate, which is more important, the, the racism, on the, the racism, the police brutality, which I don't think are the same issue, or the, the federal budget or the socialism. Uh, a long time ago, Peter, you gave a talk where you listed a whole bunch of things wrong with the world or somebody else did. And they were saying, oh, there are all these problems. And you said, no, no, there's just one problem, uh, irrationalism, right? I forget if you said irrationalism and altruism or altruism, they come to the same thing. And once you recognize that, it's, it's not, you have to trade off which one of these do we deal with. Uh, it's one problem we have to address. Um, ration, being the, the, the culture does not value reason. And because it does not value reason, it's regressing more and more into an anti-conceptual uh, get to your tribe, whether it's your skin color tribe or your guy who reads the same newspaper tribe or whatever it is. And, and try to uh, exert force on the other people, whether it's blue lives or black lives or whatever, G gang up with some gang and gang up on everybody else because we don't care about reason. So what we have to be thinking about is all of these different things that other people are concerned about, that we're concerned about, that we learn being you know, wrong, are wrong in the country and in the world, how do, what's the common denominator? And I think the common denominator is, is irrational and irrationalism is on the rise. Okay, but well, it's, it's hard to disagree with any of that, Greg. That's certainly true. We're, the, the point is the fact, it's not surprising that the culture is becoming gradually more collectivistic, more irrational, and therefore there are greater elements of racism in here. That's not surprising. The question is what therefore does that imply with respect to what's going on in the world today? Does that somehow imply any, any shred of sympathy for these protesters who are marching under the banner of Black Lives Matter? Now, it, I, as I said, I'll grant you that any number, you pick the number of those people involved in the protest, may be innocent, but the, 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 Duped followers are never the people who shape the long-term effects of a movement. It's the intellectual leaders who do. I, 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 the people who marched with the Communist Party under Lenin in 1917 because of the abuses by the Tsar, if we were there, we wouldn't be saying, well, look, you look at all the bad things the Tsar has been doing to these people. Let's join these marches. Let's support the Communist Party even if you don't buy into their whole agenda. These people were at the fringes and they became tossed away or killed once the ideology 
of the leaders of that movement of the Communist Party took hold. With environmentalism, you've got many people who are concerned about there's dirty air, there's, uh, there's a, a polluted water. The environmentalist movement, just like many things like the Black Lives Matter movement, is a package deal. And a package deal does not mean it's part bad and it's part good. And yet you can therefore, you know, criticize the bad and praise the good. A package deal is essentially what it is. A package deal is essentially the bad in, in most cases. And with environmentalism, for example, if you have a, a, a march, protest come out, let us, let's stop the production of petroleum and let, look at all the plastic straws and, and aluminum cans that are, are uh, uh, littering our oceans. You don't say, well, yes, on the one hand, there is a point, there is litter in the oceans, let's figure out how bad it is and how to stop it. On the other hand, a lot of the other things the environmentalists want is wrong. No, the environmentalist thing is essentially wrong. And this is just a red herring. And that's, the, that, that's what a package deal is. It's just a red herring, which serves to disguise and distort what the movement is really after. The Black Lives Matter movement is after inculcating guilt into individuals, into whites, because of the social system that they say is corrupt at its core, that it keeps blacks down, it oppresses blacks, it keeps blacks from achieving what they want, and the only way, according to Black Lives Matter, to resolve this is by overthrowing the capitalist system and having white people understand that anything they've achieved or anything they advocate is just a result of white privilege. So, so that's the view of critical race theory, and critical race theory is a horrible view. But not everybody responding to this, and not every organization, intellectual, responding to what's going on with uh, police violence is advocating for that, or saying tear down the police, or it's all about white privilege. So you can find groups or people, some of them compromised by some of this rhetoric, but not, and some of them not using it at all, who are talking about specific reform. Should we end qualified immunity? Should we... Um, uh, uh, um, uh, um, end uh, uh, civil asset forfeiture? Should we uh, uh, change policing policies from broken windows policing to what they call community policing? Whether each of these things is a good or a bad policy, right? And how can we also get data on what's actually happening with policing? And how can we add more accountability to this? So there are different organizations, different groups, different journalists trying to address these issues. And those are not Black Lives Matter, some of them use that language, most of them don't, some of them do sometimes. There's not just this one movement that's the only thing in the world that we have to deal with. Black Lives Matter and what do we say about them? They are a perversion or the, the kind of critical race theory view, uh, a lot of whose practitioners use black, the Black Lives Matter language, is a perversion that's distracts from and distorts legitimate concerns. And if you think about the history of this issue, right, the recent history, so if you think about the Trayvon Martin case, and then after the Trayvon Martin case, it was the Michael Brown case, and uh, the investigations into the Michael Brown case revealed that the, the officer who shot him was innocent, but there was other uh, problems in, in the police there, and the Freddie Gray case happened at the same time, and a bunch of things happened, and there was a lot of 
a, I think a groundswell of interest in, well, how can we reform police? How can we deal with this and so forth? And all of that got co-opted, taken, taken off the stage, not discussed, because this movement came in, said, smash it down with the system, et cetera. But there were also people who were working then to actually come up with constructive solutions. And I don't think we should let the bad people, the package dealers, the uh, anti-freedom people, the anti-capitalists, the anti-individualists, the anti-American people steal this issue. There's a legitimate issue here. There are people working on it and we can find and promote the better voices. That's fine, Greg, Greg, do you think though that by joining in the marches under the banner of Black Lives Matter movement that these people are advancing these legitimate causes or under- Of course not. I don't think these, I don't believe- But wasn't that our topic? I'd like to sort of broaden the question a little bit because you brought up, Peter, environmentalism. And I think that's an interesting example to think alongside of this and that it's playing on a package deal. That has to be identified, I think. But if you're thinking of the people who are duped by this. And so you can think of people duped by environmentalism where it's, yeah, of course I'm concerned about the environment. I wanna live in a place where I can breathe and so on. So they're using it as a human environment. That's not what the environmentalists mean. Right. They mean wilderness, not, but the person thinking like that, that's part of what's attracting to it, him to it. And isn't the job of an intellectual to separate, like to break apart this package. But that means you have to talk about both elements of it. And it's interesting, Ayn Rand, in one of the predictions that I think she got wrong, she said, I can't really think of Americans taking environmentalism seriously. It was the ecology movement at that time. And the point she made in effect is that people will be able to break up this package deal. Americans will clean up their rivers and their get cleaner air and so on, but they won't fall for this primitivism and back to nature and so on. But yet that's, I think, exactly what people have fallen for. It's they can't break apart that package. So it, it's one thing to ask, do you support the people going to march? And you might say, no, don't march. But what are you telling them positively that they should be thinking? And don't you have to address some of the act that part, the package deal is relying on packaging good and bad together. It's essentially bad. But it's, and don't you have to address both sides? And it's broader than just this issue, I think. So I think environmentalism is a good thing to bring but, up. But once you repudiate the, the package, once you say environmentalism is essentially, essentially means sacrificing man to nature and prohibiting human beings from reshaping the world to, to satisfy their needs. Once you identify environmentalism as that, then you, you're, you're, you, you've, you've done what you're supposed to, then people will understand, okay, now I, I see that. I'm not going to support environmentalism. I don't regard them as being against dirty water and dirty air. I'm going to start a new movement against dirty water and dirty air, which is entirely distinct from environmentalism. And here too, let them start movements to reform the police where there are legitimate grounds for um, accusing them of racism, and there may well be. So if you want things like getting rid of qualified immunity, fine, do that. But just dissociate yourself from the, um, the dominant movement today, which was our topic of discussion. The protest movement of today are not concerned with legitimate areas. They're concerned with um, bringing down capitalism and defunding the police. And once you separate them, Ankar, then yes, then, you, then the people who are duped will no longer be duped, absolutely. But is it let them do it or encourage them to do it? 
Encourage them. Encourage them to have a separate uh, um, organization that looks into real acts of racism and what can be done. Absolutely. What about the ones who are doing that? Good for them. If they're dissociating from Black Lives Matter, great. I have not heard a single voice, not one single voice in this country that denounces Black Lives Matter. Um, so what if they're not denouncing them? Maybe they should be, but they're not. But they are, some of them, actually looking into positive, real reforms and the evidence for them. Shouldn't we have a different message to, to those people than to the yeah, people but it's who are not just mindlessly marketing? It's not an issue, Craig. It's not an issue worth spending public consciousness on, that there are uh, some racist police uh, somewhere you know, in a, in a tremendous minority. It's just not worth, you know, to let that be the headlines uh, and to start a new movement to, to deal with that is way out of scale. Let's, let's uh, start a movement to uh, bring education back to education, you know, to privatize well, education, to defend reason, as you said. Uh, I, that's the problem with that is you can't, you can't take up the issue of reason per se. But I think, you know, the, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the fact that something is different in the, the culture from um, the way that it's being presented by some of you guys, not naming a name, is the defund the police movement. I mean, that is not always that insane, but nobody's saying it's insane. People are saying, well, I don't think it's practical. It, sh it should be fund the police. Let's get more police. Let's have police get tougher because black lives matter. Black lives matter and it's blacks killing blacks much more than police killing blacks. So I, I, I just, uh, that, that something like this could be mentioned, it just blows my mind that and what is it, Portland said they're going to do it? In Minneapolis. So they're not defunding the police. They're literally dismantling the police. They have voted to do away with the police force. There's going to be no police. They're going to, they're going to instead put on the 911 calls. They're going to put on uh, mental health workers to help people, to talk people through this. And I mean, even the mayor of Minneapolis said this is insane, but the city council has a veto-proof majority pass this bill that will completely eliminate police from me and i don't think it'll happen at least i, I yeah. can't imagine it happening I but this either. is what they're saying is there going to be no police for you going to be i mean this is they, they are truly this is truly insane and it, it it is i mean black lives matter and all of this is is i mean it is it is nutty it is uh it is so it is so crazy and and i think i think we all agree that marching under the banner of Black Lives Matter is wrong. It's, 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 it's sanctioning an evil. It's sanctioning an organization that is dedicated to the destruction of everything good about this country. Um, and it is a package deal. And, you know, and, and, and people, unfortunately, in an irrational world in which we live, people are suckered into it because of the, the perception of injustices or the reality of some injustices. Um, but I do think I do think th these injustices are not trivial if they exist, right? So I mean, the police are important, right? I mean, we, we all we all know that, and and they carry a gun, and if if the people carrying a gun are doing bad stuff, 
then I'm happy that there's some organizations out there that are fighting that, that are, that are, that are, that are cleaning them up, that are helping. I mean, the fact that we've now got video cameras on our phone, I think is releasing, is, is showing us that there's more police abuse. And by the way, towards every colored human being out there, there's, there's police abuse all over the place. And it's a good thing that some people, because some people have different values. Some people want to uh, fight for, and some people are going to fight for our individual rights when it comes to police, and I think that's important. But I do think it's crucial that we let people know that they are sanctioning a real evil by cooperating and, and in a sense, not denouncing the true agenda of Black Lives Matter. And, and it's been an agenda that's not being hidden. Now, what's interesting is they've changed their website. It used to be, they keep changing the website. So a few years ago, when I first researched Black Lives Matter, I went to the website and it was full of Marxist, socialist, uh, economic kind of stuff. And that's all gone from their website. Now it's all about race and transgender. That's, those are the issues they have. So they keep morphing to try to attract more people to them. And it's hard now to find the, ra- the, 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 the socialist stuff, the, the, the horrible stuff, uh, because they've cleansed a lot of it from, from kind of their, their own history. That's our job. Our job as intellectuals is to, is to point that out and to show people that that's the reality. So can I ask a follow-up question to you, John? So it's, yeah, don't march, don't do this. But if all you're giving people is, if they see this on TV and all you're telling them is don't, don't do anything. Like how a young person who cares about justice, how does that motivate that it's don't do? And it's, so I, the reason I'm in favor of talking about these kinds of issues and like in detail is one, this issue of you can't jump to the conclusion that it's racial, but it should disturb you that the police do this and to separate those two issues. I don't know if anyone here has watched the Tony Timba video. This is, this is a case in Dallas and it suggest that the police, it took three years for them to get the video of the body cams. And so it suggests a real cover-up. It's basically the same thing as the George Floyd murder, except the guys killed is white, but it's, and he calls 911 and it's, they put, they put him, he's met, he calls 911 because he's off his meds. He's schizophrenic. And he says like, this is a problem and then I'm off my meds. Can you come and help me? Um, He's face down, they have his knee on him. They're joking about, oh, did we kill him? It's, it's, I mean, it's horrifying to watch. I mean, I've seen a video of literally police blank executing somebody. So it's, 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 you have to have a positive. And look, you know, I have, I have two sons who are in their 20s now, 30. Um, and they grew up in, in the culture where the two big issues that were discussed in the high school classes were race and, um, and sexuality, right? Those are the two issues that young people engage in. And I think we have to have something to say about it. We have to address it because this is what young people care about. And it, I think there's a lot of things you can do other than march with and sanction these, these and, and we can encourage them to do the things to get involved with organizations or causes that are separate and that reject the ideas of Black Lives Matter. And I think there are plenty of those. But, but I think it's worth 
I think it's worth talking about. I, I, I at the same I, time as denouncing. I'll just add one. Here's, I mean, the point, and then Peter, you can go. The point, Harry, you brought up early on about. I mean, part of talking positively about it is not at just at the concrete level of this police entity, but of thinking of like this is individualism versus collectivism. Why is individualism right? Why is racism a form of collectivism in the lowest forms? So talking about it is not talking about it just at the concrete level and not getting to the philosophical issue. But I actually think you have to do both. If you're really reaching people, you have to do both of those. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a teaching yeah. moment in that regard. I think that's what we, we should do. It's an opportunity for us to say, you know, the socialists and the anti-Americans are attacking individualism and capitalism, which are the only non-racist, anti-racist, actually, uh, ideologies and systems that there are because racism, and then you define it, racism is judging people not by their volitional actions or talents, but by the color of their skin or their lineage, their d racial descent. And uh, I think that's a great teaching moment. I also like what Yaron said on his show that racism uh, it's a leftist meme, but it's true. Race is a social construct. There really isn't any such thing as race. Um. Uh, here's something positive that, uh, Ankar, if you're looking for something more concrete. How about this? Why don't we explain to people what the function of the police, what the function of government is in a free society? Why don't we tell them why we have a police, why it's a legitimate uh, function? Let's explain to them what it means for governments, for the laws to be objective. What is required for the objective carrying out, the objective execution of our laws by the police and that the laws have to be clear and that the police, what the police can and can't do has to be clear and what the police are actually doing should be open and transparent. Let's explain to them what the whole role of government and, and objective law is. Fine, let them, let them start an organization, the, the, you know, the, the, the uh, association for objective, objective execution of our laws by the police. That's a cumbersome title, but they'll come up with something clever. Huh. But there are many things that they could do, that, but I don't quite get the, the point of saying that because we're somehow not stressing what they can do positively, it's somehow insufficient to say, don't join this movement that is the antithesis of what you claim to be concerned about. Tell them that, tell them what Black Lives Matter is, and then tell them, if you're genuinely concerned, here's what you can do. There's, there's no, I don't see the, the, the conflict between us. Yeah, what I'm bringing up is if you do both, it means you have to talk about both. It, so yes, but not equally. But it's not, in other words, if, 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 you've, got, if you've got environmentalism, you, 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 don't, you, can, you can talk about straws littering the oceans. That's a bad thing, maybe. But it's not, you don't talk about it in the context of a nationwide movement where people are marching in the streets demanding the end to the production of petroleum. You don't then bring up the straws. Once you've discussed that, then you can say, now that I've discredited environmentalism and you're concerned about litter, let's talk about it. But the straws littering the ocean, if it's bad at all, is a super trivial evil. A police force that spends a tremendous amount of its time prosecuting people yes, for things that aren't crimes that goes into people's house without knocking to see if they maybe have some drugs there. 
and then shoot yes. people up and you get cases. That's not a trivial evil. It's a serious I evil. grant you that, but it is trivial compared to the idea of defunding the police and imposing socialism. Many, many more people are going to die because of that than because of the abuses by police. But I grant but they're you, it's, very, it's and they're variants of the same evil, you know, in the way that the straws are, right? So the straws are a nuisance, but these are both variants of lawless anarchic use of force. We're going to yes, get but, rid of the police okay. and everyone will just fight in the streets, or we're going to let the police be like gangs of thugs, right? Neither All of those I'm, are good. Yeah, I understand, Greg. All I'm saying is you cannot discuss the issue of the police with, in today's context without first repudiating the Black Lives Matter movement. Then you can talk about the police. I think that's right. And, and I, think, I think going after the war on drugs and, and other irrational laws on the books is, is part of that positive message about, because explaining the link between the corruption of the police, yeah. the, the police abuse to sure. the fact that they are going after these, um, you know, the, 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 drug, the war on drugs is the most obvious, but there are plenty of them, immigrants, uh, but, but this, you know, yeah. civil, civil asset forfeiture and, and so on. Those are concrete issues that people, and particularly the drugs, should, should really motivate people. But, there, but there's two different th issues that you could mean when you say, so they have to be disabused of the Black Lives Matter, what it stands for, what they think it stands for, what they think they're getting involved in. I agree with that completely. Like it's people marching under this, you want to really ask them what this is and help them understand what it is. But that's different than a communication issue. If you've got a young person who see like what's front and center is a police killing and you say, well, don't bother about that because you're marching under something that's bad. The idea that you're going to reach them, um, that the, the first thing you don't say is, yeah, this police killing is bad. And you should be outraged about this, but the solution to it is not Black Lives Matter. That that's a communication issue, and I think that's actually how you reach people. If they're, if go, they're genuinely concerned about it, you didn't go far enough. It's not that the um, don't the police the police issue is important, which it is. If there's genuine abuses, and don't join the Black Lives Matter. You have to go for, you have to tell them if you're genuinely concerned about this, you are undercutting and contradicting your own concerns by joining with these people who are going to defund the police and create a socialist state. That's what you have to tell them. Yeah. But we have the text right here. As you can see, I'm holding up capitalism there on an ideal. It disappears with your funny screen. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay, now we can okay, see. Okay, thank you, Your a government is the means of placing, think police now, a government is the means of placing the retaliatory use of physical force under objective control, dot, dot, dot. Um, <clears throat> the government's actions have to be rigidly defined, delimited, and circumscribed. No touch of whim or caprice should be permitted in its performance. It should be an impersonal robot with the laws as its only motive power. If a society is to be free, its government has to be controlled. And you know, you read that, you don't think of the police, you know, you think of more expansive government, but the police are where the rubber hits the road. So we have 
the uh, ammunition right here. And the issue what Ankar is calling an issue of communication, I would say it's an issue also of, of pedagogy and of actually thinking philosophically as opposed to rationalistically or empiricist, empiricistically, however you say that. I mean, you can start with, you know, here are some principles, then you present them to people and they're very wide and not connected to what their pre-existing knowledge values are concerns on. And you say you should be concerned about these eight things and then here's what follows from them. Um, but the principles then are gonna be floating to them. On the other hand, you could say, you're concerned about these five things that went wrong on your block or that you saw in the newspaper yesterday and here's what you should do about them. But then there's no principles and it's just concrete plans of action. If you're gonna be philosophical, what you have to help people to do is to conceptualize the things that they're noticing around them, that they're having concerns about, that you're seeing something going on here, and conceptualize them correctly and say, what's going on is the initiation of force. What's going on is collectivism. What's going on is subjectivism. And it's the same thing with the cop beating the guy up and with what Black Lives Matter wants and with what the USSR did and with what Trump does and with what Kim Jong-un does. It's all the same. You help them to conceptualize it. And to do that, you, you can't just stick at the concrete and you can't just start with whatever abstractions you judge is most important, but that aren't uh, yet relatable to the person. They, you have to start from what are you seeing and what's the right way to conceptualize it and what therefore what to do about it, especially in a context where the world's inundated with people, or everyone's inundated with misconceptualizations, the package deals Peter was talking about, the false narratives where everything about America is understood exclusively in terms of racism and capitalism as a cause of racism and trans this and intersectionality this and you're a cis white. All of this stuff is a misconceptualization and it um, prevents people from understanding accurately the world they're in and addressing whatever things concern them. So you wanna go back and say like, what are the facts that actually give rise to this? What things did you observe that concerned you? Here's how I make sense of those things. Here's what we should do about them. Here's how I judge them. And if you're not doing that, but you're trying to just present philosophy without using it to help someone understand the things that they're witnessing and that are going on around them, then you'd make the philosophy floating abstraction. But if you don't go to the level of the principles, then you're just, you know, you're not doing philosophy at all and you're not, you're just being a kind of concrete bound pundit. So we're all agreed. So let me ask at, at the more philosophical level then to talk, if people want to talk a little bit. Um, so towards the end of her intellectual life, so towards the end of Ayn Rand's life, she was talking more and more about tribalism, which is a term that people have been using at least since Trump's election. Um, so she, in global balkanization, she talks about it as a, as a global phenomenon. But if you read in the, in the early 70s, selfishness without a self and the anti-conceptual mentality. And one of the things she talks about in regard to the left and the old left and the new left is this kind of disintegration of that the old left um, was more theoretical, more abstract, if you take, say, the Marxist. And so we're dealing with collectivism. We're dealing with, uh, I don't know if it's been mentioned explicitly, but it's part of race. So racism, a form of collectivism, it's a form of determinism. 
And the lowest, it's the lowest form of collectivism. It's close to, if not the lowest form of determinism. It's your skin color. Like it's the most perceptually observed. That's the characteristic that determines everything versus say the Marxist. No, it's, it's economic determinism. And you need this whole story about all these economic forces at work and how they will produce capitalism and capitalism then will be its own downfall. It's an elaborate determinism in that sense and abstract. And you see, so part of if she's right about this disintegration and an anti-conceptual mentality, you would expect that collectivism and determinism, it would point towards racism. Um, so that that you find that the left is, or the sort of the the people in charge of academia, the new new left that what they morph when they go from Marxism, you would expect something like multiculturalism and so this kind of collectivism uh, and primitive. But it's if you think of it too much in political, it's oh this is what's going to happen to the political left. But if you think of it more as a cultural phenomenon you should expect what's called the political right, that the same thing's gonna to happen to them. It's this disintegration. So we're gonna get uh, more primitive collectivism and determinism. And how much do people think, in part of thinking of the Trump phenomena, and I think most people, or at least most of us have been surprised by it, that, that it's a manifestation of the same thing. And if you think of it less in political terms, and more in cultural philosophical terms, looking back, you can say, yeah, you should have expected this. So that's a long-winded question. <laughs> I mean, I definitely think we should have expected it on the right because of how anti-intellectual they were slowly becoming. And because of how everybody is being educated at the universities by the left, in, in, in the irrationality and in the identity politics. And that a lot of people, I mean, you can see this when you talk to Trump voters, why did they vote for Trump? Because they felt alienated from, and I think justifiably from the coastal elites, what they call the coastal elites, from the intellectuals of the culture, from the New York Times, which ran more stories on transgender stuff than they ran on economic issues that are related to, to, to people in the Midwest or, in other places. And as the left became more and more dominant, the, the right coalesced around being anti-left and, and being, and, and there was no intellectual leadership. So all there was was being anti-left for the sake of being anti-left. And so you get the same tribalism now on the right. And it, what's shocking to me is, and this is what, because that can be expected and can be understood. And when Trump started, okay, this is a, maybe a short-term phenomenon, it'll go away. But what shocked me is how many intellectuals on the right have moved towards the masses, towards the tribalists, and now are, are presenting a whole intellectual framework to justify their nationalism and xenophobia and, and uh, statism. That is shocking, the, the rise of journals who do that, conferences, uh, the, the, the complete evisceration of intellectuals on the right who don't have that point of view. I mean, they've been marginalized. Uh, the neocons who I used to hate, now I find them my friends, but they're so marginal now that nobody cares about the neocons anymore. They, you know, the, the readership is down. Uh, they shut down the Weekly Standard. You know, a lot of stuff has just gone away because there's no interest. So that to me, the, the, 
shift in the intellectual landscape on the way towards tribalism is what is truly, I think, uh, truly shocking. The left, we knew, the left hasn't shifted that much in the last 10 years. It's just become a little bit worse constantly. Yeah, and I put the blame on John Dewey. I think that the crippling of the educational system is why the, you, your own, have found Europe and England to be better, yep. the people there are better thinkers because they have less Dewey, although I understand that England has its own version of John Dewey, but still they have real education or, or remnants of it, and we don't even have remnants of it anymore. Can I bring up another uh, aspect of this uh, uh, return to the primitive, if I can coin a phrase, <laughs> that uh, is, is really frightening to me, uh, triggered by this whole Black Lives Movement phenomena and, and its offshoots. And that's the, this issue of uh, intellectual censorship which I think is, is, I think we're at a, um, a watershed moment here. Um, I, I'm shocked by the level of intellectual conformity and obeisance that is um, required with respect to the whole Black Lives, movement, Black Lives Matter movement. You're not allowed to question anything, I mean, Hundreds of corporations are now saying mea culpa, we should have been more aware of the problems of blacks, we're responsible, we're guilty, we're going to do whatever we can. You've got um, Uber is saying we're going to now favor black owned restaurants with the uh, Uber delivery service, whatever Uber eats. Um, the Example, Harry mentioned with Drew Brees, who was legitimately upset about people kneeling, and not just kneeling in protest against what they perceive to be police injustice against blacks, but they kneel specifically during the national anthem to convey the idea that the country at its core is corrupt and racist. And, and you have people like Reeves who objected to it, and now he's intimidated into saying he was wrong, he shouldn't have said that, he doesn't understand blacks, no whites can understand blacks. The, this this, this um, censorship, and you have with the New York Times, this is the most amazing thing of all, you know, the New York Times had an op-ed piece a little while ago by Senator Tom Cotton, where he said, if the local police are not able to handle the rioting by the demonstrators, then if necessary, the government should send in military police, which is justified, he said, under, I forget the legislation that uh, authorizes it. And he explained why, the, why it had been done before. Lyndon Johnson had used it, Dwight Eisenhower had used it, and the world went into a conniption. The staffers at the New York Times said, how could you possibly allow an op-ed like this to be published? All of the black staffers at the New York Times are now feel endangered for their lives 
because of this op-ed that was published. The editor of the op-ed page had to resign. The Philadelphia Inquirer had this article about denouncing the looting with the headline. Buildings um, matter. Buildings matter. Buildings matter too. Buildings matter too. And he too was fired or resigned. And this is to me reminiscent of what happened in the 1979 and 1980 with the Salman Rushdie thing where people become intimidated and will either be censored literally by the terrorists or in this case were self-censored because possibly they're afraid of actual physical retaliation by the goons who are present in the, um, these marches, or more likely, they just have a more, they're morally intimidated. They don't think, who are we to criticize blacks? Who are we to say anyone's wrong? We have white privilege, we're responsible. So you're going to see a spate of self-censorship of intellectual intimidation that I think is going to be very frightening. And one of the effects of that kind of self-censorship, of cowing to that kind of intimidation, is that it makes your thinking worse. So when I notice people who do that, people who, a lot of times, you know, they could get, they could speak out and they don't, right? They think they can't, but uh, they think worse things will happen to them if they do then will, and they don't, and they cower and they hide and they don't speak their mind. And what tends to happen as a result of that is they become more and more resentful of the people who are pressuring them not to say, what, who they've erected the censors in their heads in effect or let erect themselves as entries in their head. And they're like, their thought becomes paralyzed and they become uh, only able to voice that resentment and not able to actually articulate the case for what they otherwise would have been able to. They don't do the thinking because they're not doing the speaking. And it's part of that pattern taking place over decades that I think has resulted in the right, right-wingers who feel censored in academia, censored in the media, et cetera, becoming more and more a caricature of themselves. And it's a kind of self-reinforcing uh, pattern. And it has to break with speaking your mind and speaking your mind clearly and saying what, what you think is true and being willing to find out you're wrong if you're wrong and to be put down for it if you're put down for it, but to stand up for it uh, honestly and self-confidently and prizing reason and facts above uh, what gets press, so to speak. And Peter, this is, I mean, this is one example of how Black Lives Matter is winning. I mean, they clearly are winning. They're going to sure. come out of this as, as the dom, a dominant force on the left where nobody, everybody's afraid to speak up against them. Uh, it's going to force uh, uh, Biden to, to move to the left. To, to, he's already picking a black VP because of this. He's going to, uh, you know, the whole issue of race is going to be central to, I think, his administration. They're going to, they're, they are dominating kind of the, the leftist politics. And of course, they also win by, by, by doing to the right what they tend to do to the right, which is what, what so it's, it's truly is, I, I mean, it is a scary, scary time right now. So how much do people think the, and this is something Ayn Rand often talks about, that the evil forces are gain or it's easy for them to gain in a vacuum. So the fact that th there's, so this is my view, that racial issues have not been discussed well 
since, uh, I mean, probably including the civil rights movement, but since then, certainly, and, and Ayn Rand's already writing about how the, it's devolving the civil rights movement. And if you don't take up the issues in a positive way, and you just leave a vacuum, it gets filled by the worst elements. So, and she often talked about that the right is, in, is either un or anti-intellectual. They don't address the range of issues that need to be addressed and that you need to give people a positive vision about. And I think this is what happened in regard to race, that it, there's not a good enough people um, who have talked about it. I think the best person is Thomas Sowell in sort of in a career of what he's actually written, but some of the other who are taken as like the, the normal, they're sort of trotted out, well, read these people. I've read some of them, they're very mixed, but I think there's been a real vacuum in regard to how to positively think about this, how to positively conceptualize. There's too much of a story that we had a civil war in the 19th century and then everything was fine. And I mean, there's even objectivists that, that they're asked, and I've seen like students ask them, what, what do you think about reconstruction? And the answer is like, what's reconstruction? Can you tell me what that is? And, and that like, that's a vacuum. If you don't know that there was all kinds of backsliding after the civil war, and if you don't talk about that, like this was a real problem, this is what should have been done, but it wasn't done. So, and if you don't give people a positive and you have that vacuum, it's too easy for evil forces to then say, here's the pseudo explanation. And they latch onto something real and all kinds of BS, or I mean, more philosophical, all kinds of irrationalities. And that's what people are left with. And then you wonder like, why couldn't they untangle this? But it's the job of intellectuals to untangle it. And there's been a real de default, I think. But I'm interested in other people's and other perspectives on that. Well, it's part of what you would expect to happen when we don't have pro-freedom, pro-enlightenment, pro-reason intellectuals, or we have a handful of them, that, you know, there, there are us here and, you know, some others, but there's a job for intellectuals to do, right? Someone's got to understand each historical period and make that his life's work and explain what principles are at work in Reconstruction, in the New Deal era, in, in 1919, when there was a spate of race riots suddenly after World War I, some in colonial India. There's, there's a job for historians to do, understanding history, understanding what happened and explaining it. There's a job for economists to do, understanding the economy. And you know, for each field, there's work to be done. We don't just need a handful of philosophers, but intellectuals across every discipline, uh, putting things in a rational context and establishing what's true here and giving us a kind of perspective on it. And insofar as there are collectivist, irrationalist, tribalists doing it, and almost no one else taking up any of these issues because there just aren't enough people. And the ones there are spend our, you know, often either do or have to because there's no other option for them, spend all their time railing against um, the popular mainstream view but not developing alternatives. Uh, you would expect there to just be a lot of things that aren't well understood. And there's a kind of anti-conceptual Marxist history or postmodern history understanding of it and not a rational alternative. And part of the work for a generation of new intellectuals to do is to take up different issues in history, different issues in different fields, and really try to understand them. And when they haven't been well understood, I think part of what we have to do is say, yeah, there's something to work out here and we don't know the answer to it about what happened in this period historically or in this place at this time. We can say this much just based on philosophy, 
uh, and a kind of rudimentary understanding of history, but there's a lot more to be worked out and hopefully someone will do it. The and part of the challenge is that a lot of people have spoken up um, to combat the kind of stories that Black Lives Matter and others have done are discredited on other issues. And while they might be right with regard to issues of race or issues about what's going on right now in the world, because they're so bad on other things or because they're not advocating for individualism and capitalism as a solution, that, they, that it makes it hard for us to step in and, and make, the, make the same arguments about the particulars, but we're coming at it from a philosophical perspective uh, and actually have, have solutions and not to be lumped in with them. I mean, I think, I think one of our biggest challenges is not to be lumped in with the, with the conventional right out there and, and to, to make, make our voice distinct and different on all these issues. You're muted. You know, yeah. You know, a, a parallel here is the uh, Vietniks uh, in the 60s, where Ayn Rand uh, denounced the Vietnam War and denounced the draft, but that didn't in any way constitute an endorsement of the rioters and the leftists who were trying to mobilize uh, this into anti-Americanism, which they pretty much succeeded in doing, unfortunately. And uh, she, the way she would do is say the Vietnam War is immoral because it serves no selfish interests of this country. And that's the kind of way of reframing it that we have to do, that uh, police uh, racism is wrong because it deals with people the way, with blacks, the way that socialists would deal with everybody. I mean, maybe that's not the best formulation, but you gotta, you gotta reframe it as uh, the, the issue is treating people as individuals, not as part of a race, not that that race is bad or that race is good. It's irrelevant to your judgment of the person. Um, and if we talk about that reframing and to go back, I had put this at the start, Peter, you brought it up just a few moments ago about the, in, I forget exactly how you put it, but the intellectual conformity, the kowtowing, I've got to fall into line, I can't say anything different to the Black Lives Matter kind of way of conceptualizing it, that's conceptualizing these issues. It, it so, I've been struck by that phenomenon too in all these businesses. And some I think is just craven cowardice that, but there are people who like, I don't have a view of them. They're, they're not smart. They're not independent. They're not willing to buck the crowd and take Jeff Bezos is like, I think all of these, and he has the, the black, it's on Amazon. And then, I looked at what are they supporting because it's, there's a link and this is, and Black Lives Matter is about one of 10 organizations. But some of the other organizations are really good organizations. And it seems to me like part of the reason it's so important to do the reframing and to address all of the issues is for Jeff Bezos, you want to say to him, this is a way I can reframe the issue for you. 
this is a way that you, yeah, like seven out of 10 organizations you're supporting, it's good to support. These other ones, it's really bad that you're, and you're trying to get, like, if you just put all these people as, well, you're a coward. So there is that phenomenon of that intimidation, but there's better people falling for it. And there's, I think, just craven cowardice. And there too, I think, if, if you're not just going to say, okay, the whole thing's hopeless, you're trying to figure out how do I reach the better of these people who are in certain ways caving, and how do you do that? Um, and I mean, I said some things, but I'm sure there's more to say about how do you, but if you take like a Jeff Bezos has fallen for this, you can't dismiss that as, and I'm not, I'm not saying you're, you are, Peter, but it's like, you can't just dismiss him as, yeah, he's a coward, what are you going to do? Like, it's, it's much more, how do you reach him? Well, here's, here's, here's an answer that won't help at all. Uh, the, and an obvious answer, which is the, the root is the way these people have been educated. They, it's a trite thing to say people can't think. But they literally don't know how to think a lot of it. They don't know how to create proper... I'm getting an echo. Are you guys hearing an echo from me? You're fine. Okay. They don't know how to make a proper conceptualization. They don't know what classification to put X in and what to put Y in and what's the essential about this and what's non-essential. And that's why the, the whole culture is drowning in these package deals because people can't, can't conceptualize properly. They don't know how to think. They don't know how to create the right categories. So you've got racism, which nobody understands what it is, and, and all these things are lumped together into racism that are essentially different, that are essentially some, the opposite of racism. And the, the real solution, as I say, it's, it, it's not going to answer the kinds of people like Jeff Bezos, but you can see how deep and profound the effects of and education are, you know, starting from um, elementary school all the way up to high school and college, you can see how when people aren't taught to think properly and everything is subjective and concepts are just floating abstractions and everything is, 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 is your view is as good as my view. All of these cliches that they're taught that, that rest on fundamental philosophic errors prevent them from thinking properly and Unfortunately, the, 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 the long-term solution is somehow to radically redo our education system. I want to say a I'm little all bit. For, uh, let just, let me just say this quickly. Uh, just quickly, it's not a big point and not controversial. Uh, let's not underrate what we learned from Ayn Rand. It's not like, yeah. you know, we all knew how to essentialize and, and classify and not to, that there were invalid concepts. So there's a lot of actual steps of logic that you need to discuss that she understood and taught us. And that, you know, that should be done early in the schools. Yeah. I'm all for improving education, but to say the problem with Jeff Bezos, one of the most creative, efficacious thinkers who reconceptualized two or three industries, uh, is that the guy's not good at thinking. I think he's crazy. He's one of the best thinkers in the world today. What he's not is right on a lot of philosophical issues. And he is right on some of them, by the way. If you listen to him in interviews, he's uh, not perfect, but surprisingly good on 
environmentalism, for example, for someone in his position, and on a number of other, on other issues. But it's not just you're good at thinking, and so you see the light on every issue and get it right, right? There's knowledge is work, and there's work to do to understand what's the state of policing in America, what's the causes and nature of any particular movement that's going on, whether it's Black Lives Matter or environmentalism or libertarianism or, you know, neoconservatism or whatever. All of those things are work, and no one can do all the work on all the issues all the time. There's a division of intellectual labor. And the best thinkers in business have been failed uh, by the leading thinkers in the other field. So even if you have someone like Jeff Bezos who's very good, he's not going to reach every truth on his own. And he's going to need uh, other people to supply him with some. And we should be doing our work both to get the right answers and to uh, figure out how to package them so as to make the fact that we've got the right answers on these issues maximally accessible to the honest and in some cases brilliant and good thinking people who just haven't gotten to the right answer on an issue that we think we have. We have about 15 minutes left, but we don't have to use the two hours. We are getting some questions. We're a lot of people, so I haven't even been looking at the questions because I thought we we're gonna have enough to talk about. Are there any issues that any of you wanna bring up that we haven't talked about that you were hoping we would? I thought it would be useful if we would say a little bit about um, people or movements that we think are good uh, in connection to the issues going on with either policing or race, uh, and uh, ones we're not sure about, so things that are open questions for us. Don't quite get that. Do you have something in mind? Well, for example, are there particular authors other than objectivists that everyone listening would probably know that you found insightful on this issue? Are there kind of open questions for you that you're, you know, reading and looking at various sources, trying to find the answers to? Well, I found on a very narrow issue, I found um, the writer, uh, Heather McDonald, very um, objective and enlightening in dealing with the facts about police racism and police brutality, where I, I, I know there are other studies that maybe don't agree with her, but she is very convincing to me in terms of um, verifying, in terms of, of showing the kinds of things that actually statistically demonstrate the extent or non-extent of, of, of this problem in terms of the police treating blacks radically different from whites. You know, she shows, for example, that, um, um, I think it's she who shows that whites, many more whites than blacks are killed by police. Many more whites than blacks are um, unarmed. Many more unarmed whites than blacks are shot and killed by police. Now you could say, well, disproportionately blacks are victims, but disproportionately blacks commit more crimes than non-blacks. So. Um, if we're going to discuss the narrow, empirically based question of what is the extent of police abuse of power towards blacks, she has a 
trove of illuminating statistics on this. I wanted to ask you, Ron, uh, he said that um, Cato has some statistics and I think my mistake. So it turns out it's not Cato. Oh, uh, there is. I mean, there's a database. Um, there's a Washington Post database mm -hmm. covers uh, in 2015. They basically discovered that nobody actually it keeps track of, of who's who's being killed and that the FBI numbers were, were distorted and wrong. And and it just wasn't an actual source of information. And they they started accumulating uh, and creating their own database. And you can go to the database. And you can actually look and, and uh, filter through and, f and, and look to see how many, you know, they're categorized, but whether it was an armed person, unarmed, or whether they were white or black or, and, and so on. But as part of that, there's also a trove of information or, or what the Washington Post has done is they've created a website where they have links to all the different studies around this, some of which Heather McDonald covers in her book and some of which she doesn't. And... So when you look at it, you know, you can actually easily, so I did that the other day for my show, and you can, so you can actually know exactly how many people were killed who were unarmed, you know, 327 people in the last five years. So, I mean, that gives you some perspective. It is 350 million people in the, in, the, in, the, in the country, 327 unarmed individuals were killed. That doesn't mean they weren't reaching for a gun, that, you know, they could have been attacking the police, so it doesn't mean that this was wrong. The number's pretty small. Right, so to, to create such a, and then of those 138 were white, 109 were black, 57 were Hispanic. Uh, so you can actually get the numbers and you can, you, can do, you can do your own analysis. My conclusion from looking at that is statistically it's meaningless because the numbers are so small, you can't derive anything from it unless you look at it on a case by case basis. And to do that, you would actually have to do what Ankar said, which is look at the actual cases and what happened in court. And that's way too much work to do for something that is, I think, relatively small. But if you look at other studies, I found intriguing, right? And I don't know, I haven't double-checked them in references, but things like traffic stops, just plain traffic stops. Uh, Blacks and Hispanics are much more likely to be stopped uh, just for, for a broken tail out or for, or for just, just random traffic stops. But what's interesting is at night, they're not. So at night, that effect goes away because at night the policeman can't see what your color of your skin is. So, you know, little things like that suggest to me that something is going on here. But again, it's, there's a lot of data. You'd have to really screen it. You'd have to really do a crop. Heather McDonald's has done some of the work. I'm not convinced she's done all of the work that's needed, but it's, it, it would take, it's a major project to actually look at this data and figure out what's exactly going on. And that was my case. And so was when I mentioned Cato, I thought they had had the, the list of articles, but it was actually the Washington Post. And you just have to, if you really care about this, if this is a big deal, there's, you'd actually have to do the research and figure out what's going on. And, you know, while I find some of Heather McDonald's stuff convincing, other, other things I, I don't. But I haven't read her, I, you know, I read her book when it, when it came out, what was it, four or five years ago? Not recently. I'll mention a few writers and sources I found useful on this. And I'll, let me say first why I think this issue is important. The, whether it's racially motivated or not, the issue of how objective is our policing, to what extent are the police doing what they're doing for good reason versus um, you know, acting arbitrarily and capriciously, and to what extent can we trust them and trust that they'll be 
handled properly if one of them is acting inappropriately. I think that's a major part of rule of law. Um, so I think it is an important issue. Um, one thing is back in 2015, when this issue first, or you know, it had, there had been periods where it was, uh, had national attention before, but it's the last time it got a lot of national attention, 2014, 2015. The first thing I wanted to know is, yeah, well, how common is this? And is it really disproportionate with blacks and whites? And I found at the time that there just wasn't much data on it, as Iran said. And since then, uh, the, the Washington Post and a few other organizations started really collecting data. And I think that's a real value that they did. They decided, we want to know what's true here. We're going to look it up. And they report things even when it goes contrary to their political narrative. So there are a couple of different uh, places. The Washington Post, I think, is really valuable on this. There is a guy, I forget his name, but he did a recent article in 538, um, the statistics website and podcast, uh, describing what data actually is there on how common are different kinds of violence in police encounters, what measures have been tried to curb them, and has it worked, and at what, you know, what departments have gotten better and which ones worked. And um, I think it's a, that article, if you look up 538's webpage, you'll find it easily. I think that was really valuable. As to writers who have been useful on this, uh, on the police violence issue, I think Connors Friedersdorf, who writes for the, um, for the Atlantic, has been consistently good. I've learned a lot from him on it, and I think he has the right moral What's tone on the issue. What's his Connor name? Connor Friedersdorf. Um, he's sort of their token libertarian-ish guy. Um, but what's been good about him on this issue is he's not made it all about race. He's made it all about, you know, policing and what are the right standards for policing. And he's been on about this for years and years, a lot of good articles. Um, so that's kind of Friedersdorf. On the more racial side of it, um, I think uh, John McWhorter has been really good on this. Um, uh, he's the first name to come to mind. Uh, on the issue that Peter was mentioning, the people cowed into silence. Uh, Glenn Lowry has been fantastic. I don't know if anybody read his, um, he wrote a response to this uh, letter from the administration yeah, of Brown. Uh, so those are some people that I found um, positive as opposed to just not so bad on this. Uh, today, or yesterday, is today Wednesday? Today is Wednesday, right? Yes. Today, in the Wall Street Journal, Jason Riley has a fantastic, who's a black author, uh, a, a fantastic article, The Full Truth About Race and Policing. Um, and uh, he says, the public has been led to believe that racist cops were gunning for blacks, yet the available evidence shows that police use of deadly force has plunged in recent decades, including in big cities with large populations of low-income minorities. And he has many... Uh, uh, other things. According to the Sun-Times, Chicago, there were 492 homicides in Chicago last year, and only three of them involved police. That's a, that's a kind of good context-setting statement because, you know, I also have this line, line, Black Lives Matter, so support the police. I mean, it's this is part of the I mean, again, going back to Trump, I mean, part of the whole orientation of politics around fear, if you remember, carnage in the streets of America, um, and, and the idea that there's crime is rampant and police are shooting everybody, both of which are completely false. And as I said, only 327 people who are unarmed died, were killed in five years by police. That's, I mean, that would, it's much lower number than I would have expected. 
and, and it's about a thousand people killed by the police a year, which is not a huge number um, in, a, in, a, in a, such a large population. But if people are led to believe that there's carnage in the streets of America, and that, you know, then it's easy then to start causing them to fear all these other things that are going on uh, and, and, and to get motivated around these issues that are relatively, um, you know, in the scope of their lives, crime is not a big deal in America today relative certainly to what it was in the 80s or in the 70s. Um, and and uh, in, in, in that context, while, you know, we're seeing police brutality because we're seeing the video, my guess is police brutality is probably down from what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago when there wasn't videos and there wasn't this. Although I do think that as the war on drugs has ramped up, it's, become, it's probably become worse. Um, all of this exaggerates these... Um, these issues and we live in a culture that can't think and then emotes it's 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 around emotion and one of the big emotions is fear um i want to say one thing about the conceptualization of it as priest police brutality it's not i don't think it's a good conceptualization of it it's you're concerned about non-objective policing or police misconduct but it can not even it might not even be police misconduct it's the law is making them do things that are really non-objective. But if you read about the stop and frisk, it's mostly not brutality, but it can destroy people's lives. And it's, it's relatively innocuous. So the, I, I'm reading about some story, one, uh, and this is in the Ferguson report, about a guy who's sitting in his car and he's basically the police, he's harassed by the police. He's, you're not wearing a seatbelt. He's parked. You don't have this. He's in the report. There's, he's simultaneously charged with, you don't have a license and you have an expired license. And you think, okay, the, the, he gets a criminal record and he loses his job. And it's not police brutality, but it's not good either. And that someone would really object, like I'm being mistreated. And if you say to them, well, you didn't get beaten up. That's not a proper response to it. So if you're really trying to think about these things, there's a lot going on. And I would say on the issue of the statistics, the COVID-19 pandemic should be sobering by how bad the news, but a lot of analysts, pundits are in thinking about numbers and what you would have to figure out, oh, Cases are going up. Yeah, are you doing more testing? Yeah. And it's really primitive. And so when I'm looking for experts, I'm looking for people who can admit they're wrong, who are interested when data comes up that doesn't fit. And it's not, I'm going to make it fit. It's like they have a more scientist mentality. It's interesting that it doesn't fit. Maybe I can learn something from this. And I find there's not many. Like, so I'm looking for someone who I think is after the truth. And there's too many, both on the right and the left, where it seems like, oh, they have a lot of numbers and so on. But if I ask the question, do I think they're looking for the truth? It's rarely my answer is yes. And there's, there's definitely a sense among, among blacks that they are being discriminated against by the police. I mean, Tim Scott, the Republican Senator of South Carolina, tells the stories of his traffic stops. And yeah, it's just traffic stops, but 
it's, I mean, as, as I think you're right, it's, it's sometimes these little things, you know, they also find that they're more likely to search your car if you're, if you're, if you're black or Hispanic than you're white and things like that. These things, you know, particularly if they occur over and over again, they, they are demoralizing to, to good people. Uh, and I, I think it's something, we have something unique to say because of the issue of individualism and capitalism. And, 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 and that is the solution to it. And it's worth saying in a world in which there's a vacuum, no, nobody is saying anything rational about these things. They're either denying it or, or acknowledging complete racism. Yeah, I think uh, along the lines of uh, pushing individualism and capitalism, what you said, your own suggested a good entree. Yes, individuals have inalienable rights and the police can't run roughshod on them. They're the servant of the people. They're there to protect our rights. And anytime one of them violates our rights, it's, it's wrong, just as it's wrong if government passes a law to violate our rights. Make a little transition. Okay, we're at now two minutes over. Yeah, now we're two minutes over. So let me uh, draw a line here. So let me thank everyone. Uh, I think this was an interesting conversation. Thanks for all the people who stayed to the end. I hope you found it uh, valuable and got some insight from it. But thanks everyone for making the time to do this. Uh, and I mean, some of these issues we'll be talking about, I think, for uh, many months to come. So maybe we'll do this again. Uh, sometime, but thank you and thanks everyone for joining us. And let's thanks, draw a line. Thank, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. If you'd like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast is made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.